1: The Doctor is in. Live, yes, he's live from the Holy Land in Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. Uh, it's Dr. Bitar. How are you, my friend, in the Middle East? I am doing very well, Robert. How are you? Do, doing really well. I, just, I imagine I remember my trips over to Israel so many years ago. I got to go uh, to, to Lebanon at the time as well and uh, went down to the Dead Sea where you were last week. We had the pictures covered in mud. Any adventures that are worth sharing, or, or have you felt pretty pretty comfortable and safe as you've gone around and uh, you know done visits and done some more uh, presentations?
0: Um, actually, it's been very very safe. It's interesting the propaganda and how the media you know creates this illusion. In fact, I've got some pictures that I took of signs that were posted, and it's really amusing to see how. Geographical boundaries and ethnicities does not change anything. The, the same dilemma uh, here as it is back home, where governments try to manipulate people and try to create uh, issues. Um, you know, there's there's uh, abject uh, abuse of freedoms that all people should have. I've got signs where they're they're posted saying that you know you are now about to enter into an area that is dangerous, um, your life may be threatened, and uh, if you're Israeli, uh, you will not be protected going into these areas, and they're actually the safest areas, that's where I'm seeing Bethlehem is in one of those areas, and I've met uh, some Israelis that actually live here, and you know they say the same thing, that it's just amazing that that type of picture
1: mm-hmm.
0: is uh, painted, and... There's a lot of issues over here, and there's a lot of issues that's no different than the Aborigines or the American Indian or the Maori in New Zealand or any other people that's been displaced. And, you know, the the new people that come in, the old people that are still here, the the rife that goes along, you have to look at, you know, both different perspectives and understand. But it really comes down to that instead of looking at commonalities, as we've discussed before, there's always... Accentuation of the differences, and when you magnify those differences, then sometimes people get very upset, and you know, people feel uh, they've been taken advantage of, and it basically promotes a lot of uh, anger, frustration, uh, sometimes hatred. And instead of trying to tone things down, it seems like governments seem to—they get power from that. They get exas- you know—they yeah. they, they exacerbate the situation so that they can create division among people. The same thing we see back home, you know, Republicans, Democrats, and you know, they get into these outrageous clashes and, you know, condemning one another, and and then you start, you know, people like you and I that know Mm -hmm. it's all an illusion and it's all a distraction created to um, keep the real issues at bay. It's the same thing here, and uh, it's sad, but uh, one thing I just realized being here that it's the same stuff everywhere in the world, and everybody thinks the grass is greener on the other side, of course.
1: Right. Well, the manipulation from central bureaucracies is uh, consistent around the world. Like you said, you're, you know, you meet with some Israelis in an area where the, the government says, oh, that's dangerous, and the people there are going, well, no, it's, it's actually quite safe here, uh, but there's a lot of benefit to government and emp- empowerment of government by creating the, and fomenting uh, some of the hatred and divisiveness, etc. I mean, even back in Waco, Texas this week, Dr. Bittar, although this wasn't necessarily government-related, uh, like four or five biker gangs got together in Waco, Texas on a peace summit, and I don't know, something broke out in a bathroom. Suddenly there's a shooting and nine people dead. Uh, but mm-hmm. it, all, it all happened within, you know, biker gangs. So it, turf wars are just seemingly a human condition unless you can uh, perhaps spiritually get beyond the, the, the concept that uh, – uh, you know that you have a little bit more dirt than somebody else, and and that's uh, a reason to kill.
0: Well, you know the amazing thing to me is that I m- I visited Abraham's tomb in Hebron, and uh, Sarah and Isaac's tomb right next to him, and the mosque is where the tomb is. It's one. It's partially a mosque, and on the other side, uh, it was taken over after 1948 after the um, uh, Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict. Uh, part of that is a, is a uh, synagogue now, but it's the same building. So it's divided in half, and they've got this wall in between. So the tombs sit in between these windows. So when you're looking into the tomb from a window on the other side, you can see the Israelis looking in uh-huh. at the same the same tomb,
1: right? Right.
0: You've got um, here in Bethlehem. The um, the church of uh, I think it's called uh,
1: Church of the Nativity.
0: Nativity, right? the Church of Nativity. I was going to say the the native church, but that's not right. The church (laughs) of Nativity. Yeah. um, You know where Jesus was born, and right across, right across the courtyard is a mosque. And I was given this historical perspective that up until maybe thirty years ago, that courtyard was a jail that has been there for like 800 years or 1,200 years or 1,500 years. I don't remember how long, but it's like literally century after century it was a jail, and it's been controlled by 27 different uh, groups from, you know, the Byzantines, the Ottomans, the, you know, mm-hmm. before that, Romans. I mean, it's just, it's it's been a jail, and there have been so many people that have been harmed and... Um, Abused and mutilated in that jail. I mean, this is like literally—you can stand. I'm not even exaggerating. You wouldn't even have to throw a rock that hard and hit that courtyard from, wow. from the church of Nativity. In fact, if when you were here, it probably had already been, um, uh, you know, brought down that jail. It's a right. courtyard and people But you, you, there. you
1: must be able to sense uh, maybe spiritual discord there. I mean, to have that kind of history.
0: Well, they—they they basically the, the Palestinians have taken it down. Basically, okay. uh, the last 30 years, it's been destroyed. And uh, they just made it into a public area where people can come and, and congregate and enjoy and kids play and they've got some fountains and stuff like that. Um, but the point is that I, I was amazed that, you know, here is a place where there's a church and they had a major, major jail, not just a small little, um, you know, jail house. It was like a major right. prison right there. And um, then, of course, like we talked about, you know, you've got a, mosque across the street, you got a synagogue around the corner. So people can obviously, with very significant differences, at least what they think are significant differences in their religion, if they even took a moment to sit down and, mm-hmm. and look at the commonalities, they'd, they'd be amazed, because we all come from, if you look at the monotheistic religions, we all come from Abraham. Right, and similar origin. It's, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's the same exact origin. You know, if from Abraham came Isaac and Ishmael, from Isaac came Christ and Moses, and from Ishmael came Muhammad and and so it all comes back to Abraham. In fact, this is why at in Hebron there were so many people at, at this uh, at Abraham's tomb, for example. And so when you start seeing people paying homage to uh, one man that both faiths or all three faiths attribute so much uh, history to and so much of what they believe to, then do you think that if Abraham was sitting here right now, he would um, understand why? There's this rift between uh, the three monotheistic religions, and as if that wasn't bad enough. Within each one of those monotheistic religions, there's rifts and, and differences. Sure. So,
1: you know, you go to Ireland,
0: you've got the Catholics and the Protestants. You know, you look at Iran and Iraq with the Sunnis and the Shiites, and, you know, Judaism, you've got the, you know, Orthodox versus the ones that that maybe they're not as, maybe that's not as violent, I don't know, but the point is that mm-hmm. there are differences within each of these faiths too, and sure. then within each of those, all you need is four people to have a disagreement, right? All right,
1: and Dr. Batar, your interactions there, uh, you know, like you're lecturing, you're teaching, you're interacting, and of course, uh, you probably maybe validate this, and we mentioned it last week, that people just want, if they want to do business together, it, it isn't in their own best interest to find a way to get along, even if they have different beliefs.
0: Well, that's, that's a very true statement, but Here's the thing that I'm giving a lecture now to a bunch of conventional doctors, and the vast majority of them were Muslim. Some of them may have been Christian. Uh, this is in Jordan, and um, you know there was that same conventional process among some of them, very very extreme. You know, only ways chemo, radiation. Some of them were very very interested in the other options. You know, and they were curious, they wanted to know what's going on. Um, tomorrow when we get back to Jordan, I'm meeting with the major uh, hospital. They want me to be in some position. Uh, in the hospital, uh, on their board, or you know, among, the, among the leadership within the hospital, which I thought was very interesting, um, I have already been invited to come back and give a lecture in October as a keynote speaker. But there were some people that were very, very upset with what I had to say and, and, and how I said it. And
1: Well, and it didn't so matter. You were, it. you were among people that may believe similarly to you in, in a religious perspective, but, oh, my gosh, you, you didn't follow the faith of allopathic <laughs> <laughs> oncology.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And that's my point. All you need is four people to disagree. So, <laughs> you know, it doesn't take that much. It's if you if you solved one problem, you'd have people disagreeing about something else. And so, I think that's just the nature of man. We're like crabs when when one gets up, we tend to pull them down. And we really sort of need to look at humanity and, and and where we where we are and where we've evolved from and which way we need to go. Mm. So, I think that um, preaching tolerance and acceptance and what what all the well, all the monotheistic religions actually teach, but not seem to practice.
1: Right? Yes, very rarely that actually put into practice. We got a little bit of time before our first break here. We're talking with Doctor Rashi Batara. We do advanced medicine each and every week, and uh, he's uh, live in Bethlehem of all places—the you know, the Holy Land, right there, the convergence of uh, the three monotheistic religions. Interestingly enough, finding conflict not religiously but allopathically versus integratively or holistically I, I, a, I still find that fascinating so when we come back we'll talk about some of our ways to look at uh some health and healing and food and some stories here from america as well that i will have dr Batar comment on remember his international best-selling book the nine steps to keep the doctor away i'll have at least one with me to show everybody at autism one next next week even though dr Batar can't make it this year but he'll be there in spirit with me all right we'll be right back after this stick around The Robert Scott Bell Show. Rocking the health world through the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. All right, if you ever miss an Advanced Medicine Monday, it's easy enough to go to medicalrewind.com. Medicalrewind.com right now. Dr. Batar continues, in Bethlehem, of all places, as he travels around the world, bringing the power to heal back where it belongs and uh, shaking up the medical tree, I guess. It doesn't matter where you are, Dr. Batar. If they're uh, stuck in an allopathic thought form, it's going to be difficult for them to accept uh, you know, the realities that you're bringing to them.
0: Well, there was some resistance, and apparently, at one point, uh, probably a third of the audience would have walked out, I was told. I don't know if that's true or not, but they would have walked out. The only thing was that. Um, the uh, chief minister, deputy minister of Jordan, as well as uh, was a former minister of health, and now he's over the minister of health, uh, um, was there, and he loved my lecture. And actually, I don't know if I to talk about this last week. I went and apologized to him. Apparently, he stopped this, you know, third of the audience from leaving, and um, I apologized to him. You know, if I offended somebody, and he looked at me and he smiled. and patted me on the back and he said are you kidding me that was a fantastic lecture and he said they're like children they need to be punished they need they need uh, (laughs) that he said they they deserve it they need it you know and uh get a fantastic job by opening their eyes in fact he's one of the people I am meeting with uh, when I get back to Jordan so it's
1: interesting well it's different than Garth Brooks song because you got friends in high places not low places so uh (laughs) maybe they also need more drug residues in their milk let's let's see if those allopathic oncologists would go for that here have some milk with some pesticides what do you think
0: you know it's amazing the story, Robert. Because you know when I read it, it's first of all it's a good thing FDA is considering expanding tests for drug residue in milk. Okay, so that's a good thing. They're starting to at least look for the drug residue in milk. But look at the contradiction here, because what type of milk does not have any drugs in it for sure?
1: Well, if they're honest about the raising of of, of these animals, these dairy cows, organically, they should not have these drug residues in them, antibiotics.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Organic raw milk is not going to have any of this stuff. In it. Why? Well, if it's organic, and if it's the kids are not being kept in close quarters, they're they range fed, they're out there eating the grass. There's no re- the, the chance of them even being sick or requiring antibiotics. will gonna be far less. But what I found interesting was the contradiction is that you know they're saying that raw milk, un- uh, unpasteurized milk, and here's one, here's one of the problems. When you pasteurize milk, and again, I'm probably I'm opening up a can of worms that you're probably thinking, maybe, well, maybe not you, but <laughs> maybe somebody would. I uh, wish we wouldn't open up this can of worms. But when you're looking at raw milk, the one thing with the raw milk that people don't understand is that it does have all these natural probiotics in there, all this bacteria in there, but it's naturally occurring bacteria. And this naturally occurring bacteria keeps the pathogenic bacteria at bay. Mm-hmm. So naturally occurring bacteria in our guts, we call that, when we don't have enough, it, we take it as a supplement, we call that probiotics, okay? So if there's probiotics, if we take as supplements, and here are natural probiotics that are already existing in milk, and then we go in and we pasteurize it, and we um, homogenize it, when doing the pasteurization process, you basically kill all this good bacteria, and now the milk isn't going to have all that beneficial bacteria, but now you've got all this other crud that's in there from these drugs. So you're really creating, um, you in my world at least, you're actually adding one problem to another problem. You first pass sure. the milk and I get the antibiotics. And now they're going back into checking it. Maybe this is, uh, uh, sequel, a pre-sequel to them going back and saying, hey, maybe we need to start infusing probiotics in the milk. I have no idea if that's going to come here, but then, you know, where do we start from? Hey, why don't we just leave the milk the way God designed it and just yeah. consume it the way we consume it and leave, let it all go?
1: Well, as we know, the, the antibiotics are largely used to keep the animals in factory farms just alive. Some have argued that they're good for fattening them up for slaughter, although in dairy cows it isn't that purpose necessarily, but their shorter lifespan in terms of, Milking span is very interesting, and that's been bred into them as well as, well as the way they exhaust them uh, through these machines and the the, the chronic use of this, this these antibiotics. So, that, but the FDA doesn't test a lot of them, so they're actually talking about expanding the test to see other things that people may be consuming.
0: Yeah, uh, that's that's uh, that's really what the gist of the story was. Even though I took it off on a tangent, you know, I can't wait to get back home because we had a baby cow born. Um, three days before I left and I dewormed the cow before I left so we weren't consuming the milk even though we thought maybe we should consume some of the milk because we could all use a little bit of deworming every now and then you know? <laughs> yes. uh, but, uh, but yeah, my wife's been making homemade ice cream and
1: oh, nice. milk,
0: is just, milk is awesome
1: yeah. all right, of course, well, we can't tell it we can't no. sell it North Carolina so we just no. give it away to our neighbor. Well, stand by. We got to take another break here. We've got a lot of good health stories coming up, uh, including a, a question of the day that's fascinating. I want Dr. Batar's take on it. It relates to psychiatrist and autism. Wait a second. We'll be right back. The Robert Scott Belgium in the health world through the power of radio it's the robert scott bell show all the links are up in the show notes at robert as they are each and every week here with dr batar dr batar is in bethlehem what a cool opportunity to get world perspectives but right now let's get a perspective from one of our listeners dr batar we have questions of the day that come in from all over the world listening in through natural news radio our syndicators at gcn of course itunes epic times stitcher Tune in, and even more at UKHealthRadio.com. And this one just came in today, Dr. Batar, and this is, just, this is a heartbreaker because it's from a mom who says she has a nine-year-old autistic son. They're on the, what they call the GAPS Diet, Gut and Psychology Syndrome Diet, but her husband disagrees with her treatment. She wants to go, it sounds like more natural, uh, he wants to just go with psychiatric drugs and going through the psychiatric, uh, uh, let's say, prescribing and such, they meet, the mom and the dad meet, and then evidently the dad met alone, and she got a hold of the notes, the psychiatrist saying uh, she's not you know, in her right mind talking about the mom here, based on no meeting with her or interview with her, based on meeting with the husband here. I'm thinking there's got to be some problems with this as a licensed medical doctor to do this.
0: There was a couple of things that I think we should mention here, which um, may help to shed a little bit more story. First of all, the husband and wife, as you said, definitely disagree, but the child's been on three different drugs, and then the drugs were causing these outbursts, and then they were treating the side effect of the drugs. And so it's been going on for about a year and a half, according to this email, I believe. Yeah. Um, But she basically was against um, adding Prozac and Zoloft. And uh, then the psychiatrist suggested to the parents that they need to go talk to an attorney and find out who who should actually have the, uh, what was it?
1: Well, the final say on medical decisions, yeah.
0: Right, decision making ability is exactly the words that they used to have the decision. Who should have the decision making ability? But you know, let me let me just. I I read this email and it just really angered me. Yeah. Um, It angered me for a number of reasons. First of all, I think that this lady needs to understand that the problem here. You can, you know, her, her last thing is please let me know what I can do to make the psychiatrist change the false info on my son's medical records or at least make him give me an explanation, I would like to discuss this with Dr. Buttar if possible. Okay, so, you know, the first thing is that the lady's name is Mary. So, Mary, the first thing is you need to understand, the first and most significant problem here is that your husband is meeting with this doctor Mm -hmm. behind your back. Right. And for the doctor to say that you were delusional, though I did not conduct a formal assessment... And then to go on to say that um, I cannot think of anything. Uh, to, to go on to say that I'm concerned that the mother may have an underlying medical condition that is adversely affecting your ability to appropriately make medical decisions regarding your son. This Mary, you need to be aware that you are being set up.
1: Yeah, that's what it sounds like.
0: That's exactly what it is. Because at the end of the day, whether or not there's a divorce between these these parents or not the doctor is setting the mother up to take a hint so that when somebody goes through a medical record and looks at this, they're going to say, well, clearly this doctor already said that you're not fit. Now, she needs to, in my opinion, she needs to get an attorney. She needs to file a lawsuit against this doctor right. to teach him a lesson because he's actually, she's not even a patient of her. I mean, if she didn't give him a why is she making medical diagnosis about the mother? And he's doing that on purpose for, you know, for whatever's going on. I mean, you need to wake up and smell the coffee because you can't make anybody – this line really also made me think, Robert, and I know that I'm not supposed to – the person who's asking us for help, we're not supposed to get angry at that person. But I, I was a little angry at Mary when I read this. It says, please let me know what I can do to make the psychiatrist change the false information on my son's medical records or at least to make him give me an explanation. Yeah. The first thing, Mary, you need to remember is that you cannot change anybody else. Okay, You can only change yourself. You need to be proactive. You need to look at the situation for what it is. You can't make somebody go up and say, hey, um, like me, or hey, uh, just because I'm saying it's blue. it's blue." Or You can't make anybody else do anything. But you need to see the writing on the wall. You obviously want the better thing for your child. You're, uh, I read this to actually two other doctors that are sitting right here with me uh, in the other room before yeah. we came online, that we came uh, for the show. Yeah. Yeah. I read it to them, and they both were like – they both said the same thing. Well, it obviously sounds like dad's sick and tired of the kid and just wants to medicate him right. and, and be done with it. And, and the mom obviously does not want that to be the, the situation. She's still trying to see if she can get help. And maybe it's a financial issue. Maybe it's just a, you know, an issue of a burden, emotional burden. Dad just doesn't want to deal with it anymore. Whatever the cause is, whatever the, the reason the dad's doing what he's doing, I don't know him. I don't care to know him. The point is that the mom needs to be aware that the dad is doing certain things that are that you would not do in a husband-wife relationship. You wouldn't go sure. meet the psychiatrist behind the back. And, and as a husband, if it's a good relationship or even a decent relationship, even if it's a relationship that's still supposed to continue for at least another year, the husband would not tolerate a doctor writing that about his wife, regardless of what her opinion is. Yeah. The only reason that a husband would tolerate that is if he's trying to set her up.
1: Yeah, it does seem to be at this point a little bit of an abusive relationship, not only... Medically abusive to a child that is indeed suffering, as we know, not a psychiatric drug disorder, uh, but also the, the wife at this point being set up, maybe being too trusting, uh, maybe being too much of the victim, as you've described, how you must stand up belligerently, diligently, forcefully for your rights. And in this case, again, I know you're not giving legal advice, but we're talking as dads as well and moms as parents here to say, we've got to put a stop to this because it looks like indeed that's what it is, setting her up for a fall and maybe not in the best interest of this child. So, again, take what we say with a grain of salt, but I think I, I agree with you and the docs there The talking about this. That's kind of what I saw. That's why I got so angry when I read the letter as well.
0: Yeah, because she's uh, she seems very naive that she's trying to convince the psychiatrist no. to change the issue, and that's not the issue. The issue is there's something more going on. And, unfortunately, if she does take the fall, which she seems to have been set up for, Besides her suffering, the child's going to suffer because he's going to be continue to be medicated, and he's not going to have any chance. I mean, he's already nine years old. His the elasticity of his brain is exponentially decreasing now. Right. And you know, by the time he's fourteen, fifteen, all hope for complete recovery will be pretty much gone. I mean, my oldest kid that I have a hundred percent recovery you know, was a fourteen-year-old kid. No. no, no. After that, we've helped people get better, but we haven't you know brought them back to. I mean, yeah. they're not going to be physicists or you know nuclear engineers or anything like that.
1: Right. We're talking with Doctor Batar, it's advanced medicine. He's in Israel in Bethlehem right now. He's been all over the Middle East, talking with doctors, uh, lecturing, teaching. And uh, if the audio is not as perfect as we normally like it, uh, I'm willing to go with it because Doctor Batar has some really important things to say about these issues. Uh, we have another story here that's interesting. We did, we talked about the dairy cow issue and the uh, the uh, the FDA investigating these uh, pesticides, but uh, there's another concern out there called orga- or nanoparticles, right? They've been in- investigating nanoparticles uh, in, in on- onco- oncological treatments like uh, platinum. And platinum we know is very toxic to cancer cells, but it's also very toxic to healthy cells. We've talked about silver nanoparticles before, but this article is interesting. They're talking about, what I don't know what these organic nanoparticles are, but they're saying it may be safer, more effective, or as effective as platinum. What do you make of this article?
0: Well, it's most... To me that at least what really hits me, Robert, is that they're admitting that radiation has a lot of collateral damage.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, that's the first thing that they're saying that in order to make it more selective, we need to look at something else. So the only reason that we're looking at something selective is they have to admit that there was a, there's a lot of incidental collateral damage from the current therapy modalities. And so that was the big thing that stuck out to me. But if there is something that is more selective and allowing for uptake of radiation based upon some of these um, rare earth metals or whatever else they're going to be using instead of the, the the platinum and the and the gold and some of these other ones that they're currently using um, you know it, it, it can only be a good thing I'm I'm not sure what the implications would be I'm still against the concept of in my in my philosophy at least you know this is not a problem with the cancer because the cancer everybody looks at the cancer as a problem and everybody's attacking the cancer and the cancer is just a message. Cancer is not the problem. Cancer is a flashing light on your dashboard. Cancer is a symptom of the underlying problem and if you kill the symptom you don't do anything to the underlying problem. It's symptom come back and we see that every day practically patients coming in that were diagnosed with cancer, went through chemo, went through radiation, gave them a clean bill of health and then you know, two months later, six months later, a year later, five years later, they come back and the cancer is now and not only is it back but it's now instead of being stage 2B, it's like stage 4 or it's, I just had a had a case today that my, my staff emailed me on. Same situ- situation here. It's not the, going after the cancer is not the answer in my book. It's, right, right. It's the symptom anyway, but you know, if you're looking at things that are going to be more selective with cancer, I mean, that's always going to be a better thing. It's always better to cause less collateral damage and be more selective if you're going to go sure. attack the, the messenger.
1: Well, and we've, we've referred to studies here where they have used things like silver nanoparticles without radiation because of their oxidative uh, stress and electrical charge they carry and oxygen carrying capacity and these cancer cells don't have Antioxidant defense mechanisms like healthy mammalian cells do.
0: Yeah, exactly, and and I think that if we can get things into the system that are going to be less toxic that's always going to be beneficial to the individual going through the treatments because they're not going to have to deal with They're not not have to deal with all the And That's one of the biggest problems You know when you look at the therapies themselves how much of that causes the actual damage to the individual? How many times have you heard of patients that have gone through chemo and radiation and then they've ended up dying from from uh, radiation toxicity? They've died from mitral valve issues and cardiac issues due to the type of chemotherapy they had, or they've ended up having loss of bowel and bladder control from the radiation on their spine, and now they can't—you know—they have nerve damage. They can't stand up. They have paralysis. They have all these neuropathies and everything else developing. So. Um, anytime you can make treatment that's going to be, you know, conventionally, again, I don't agree with the philosophy, but right. if you are going to be doing that kind of treatment to make it less damaging to the healthy area of the body, I think that's that's fantastic.
1: Yep, yeah, our buddy Ty Bollinger is out around the world gathering more stories from allopathic and holistic physicians uh, on cancer now with the next uh, round of the Quest for the Cures continue. so we'll continue to cover those as well, and as I said, we don't denigrate them for trying to do a little bit better, but at the same time, we'll encourage them to come on all the way. And the best way to do it, in my opinion, you doctors out there listening haven't read Dr. Batar's book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away, uh, that is a game changer. You begin to see perce- perspectives that you were not taught in medical school. And, of course, uh, you know the issue of uh, the mainstream media, these gatekeepers of the status quo, I, I know we're all up against the break. I apologize, Dr. Batar, but the mainstream media attacking alternative medicine again, after their scientific links to cell phone radiation. Somebody actually dared to write about it in the New York Times. Suddenly he's attacked viciously. How dare they bring up a science that that, uh, might be in opposition to the status quo, that cell phones are good for everybody every time, all the time. Strap them to your bodies and never turn them off.
0: Yeah, it's a very, very big problem. And ambient cell phone radiation is one of the biggest issues. Most people don't even know it, but from 1983 to 2003, we doubled the number of cell phones on the planet and the amount of ambient cell phone radiation we were being exposed to.
1: Was- Maybe we should just get rid of all men. That's the next question in the final break. Why are there any men at all? I'll ask Dr. Bittar that question because there's an article about it after this on The Robert Scott Bell Show, Advanced Medicine with Dr. Rajid Bittar. Live around the world, The Robert Scott Robert Bell Show. Scott Bell Show. <laughs> Scott, the bell Robert Show. scott bell Show. all right we continue now dr Vitar in bethlehem uh, great addition uh, i again the, the audio quality is not perfect but again we're halfway around the world so we're going to take it now the issue of uh the em fields uh cell phones etc any any more i know i had to rush out on the break here before we get to the why are there any men at all question because i'm sure everybody wants to know uh, but, well, uh, I
0: was just going to say that the uh, ambient cell phone radiation from 83 to 2003 doubled, and then from 2003 to 2004, mid-2004, doubled again. From 2004, it only took another six months. to Early 2005, it doubled again. So it's really increasing at an exponential rate. And this is something in the in my uh, seven toxicities. This falls underneath the fourth toxicity, the energetics. Mm-hmm. And ambient cell phone radiation and microwave uh, radiation are the two greatest sources of toxicity, to humans at least and um so it is an issue it's a very important issue and i'm glad this person wrote about it because people need to be aware of it.
1: good well check it out all the links are up in the show notes at robertscowbell.com including this last article i want to talk to you about in the telegraph in the uk why do men still exist now i don't know if a lesbian wrote this i mean that's an honest question i don't know but evidently scientists have finally figured out the answer why we're around dr batar
0: Yeah, you know this was also an interesting story because um, as I was reading it, uh, this actually was first presented by Darwin in his theory of natural selection. They call it actually uh, sexual selection. But um, the the person who wrote this article says that it would be more efficient if we were an asexual population and we just produced females, and females could produce sperm themselves and self-insemination, and the and think they equate humans to uh, some type of a lizard over here that does that. Yeah, With the it, Mexican
1: uh, whiptail lizard. <laughs> Why aren't we like right. them?
0: Yeah, exactly. I think my wife has referred to me as a Mexican whiptail lizard. Oh, no. um, <laughs> no,
1: that's it. Okay.
0: So, you know, the funny thing is that the, the study that they did to determine this was a 10-year study, and they looked at uh, beetles, and the Interesting. The interesting part for me, Robert, was that the group of beetles. This was, I believe, 50 generations they studied over a seven-year period. The study was a total of 10 years, but it was the Tribolium flower beetle. And they took one group that had 90 males that had to compete for the affections of just 10 females, and then they took another group that had uh, the opposite contrast. It was um, just uh, 10. Ten males for ninety females, or something like that, and they found that the the group, the one that had more males, than ninety males that had to compete with each other, after seven, I'm sorry, after seven years of fifty generations, the researchers found that the males who had competed the most for females were fitter and more resilient, resistant to disease and inbreeding. In contrast, beetles without sexual selection, meaning there was only ten males, day, that's all they had to select from, became extinct after ten generations. Wow, and that is pretty fascinating.
1: So, uh, you know, all this UFC, Ultimate Fighting, boxing, all of that stuff is uh, is is for the survival of the species.
0: Well, not necessarily all that, and you know, we've we've evolved a little bit beyond our ability to survive among you know fights with each other. It's, It's basically who can provide the best. But I think that it's this could be actually. This actually could be one of those studies that could be a moment of duh, I guess, in sure. some ways, because they're they're looking at males. Why do males exist? Well, why do males exist in every multicellular? Um, you know, above the sure, as it's far it. as the complex mammals concerned, we, there's always males and females. So it's they could have applied this to you know to say why do men still exist? It's kind of a silly thing, but it, it was an interesting point that the natural selection aspect does help to make the. Population fitter and, yep. uh, and, and and better.
1: Well, it's the duality of the lower worlds. We see that in so many things. There's light. There's dark. There's male. There's female. And uh, it just seems to be the order of the universe. And, and take it up with the creator if you got a problem with it. Right.
0: Right. Exactly. The resistance to d- disease is an interesting aspect because, again, from the natural selection standpoint, it makes sense. You know, those that are not going to be resistant to disease will just it'll it'll die out that part will die out so uh the theory of national selection lives on
1: yeah interesting well listen dr Batar sir, thoroughly enjoyed you being over there not because uh i like you far away but i love the adventures you're able to share and perspectives you can bring back and i want you to have a safe journey home i know you, uh, i think next week you'll be back in studio
0: yes i will be back next by next monday i'll be back home
1: all right now let's hope uh, deb is cool with the why men exist thing
0: yeah, I think she's probably cool with that. Did you <laughs> come, did you can't wait for me to come
1: home. Welcome home. All right. Well, Dr. Vitar, we're out of time. Thank you. Uh, uh, many blessings to you over there, and I know you're spreading the good healing word. I appreciate that. In the meantime, we keep sending the word out around the world. The power to heal is yours. The Robert Scott the Bell, Robert Bell Show. Scott Bell Show.